ask you to turn with me in the scriptures to Ezekiel's prophecy, chapter 33. Ezekiel, chapter 33. Ezekiel 33, we'll begin reading from verse 7 of Ezekiel's prophecy. Ezekiel 33, verse 7. Let us hear the word of God. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel, Therefore shalt thou hear the word at my mouth, and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. If thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way... He shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Therefore, O thou son of man, speak unto the house of Israel. Thus ye speak, saying, If our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them, how should we then live? Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Therefore, thou son of man, say unto the children of thy people, The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, He shall not fall thereby in the day that he turneth from his wickedness. Neither shall the righteous be able to live for his righteousness in the day that he sinneth. When I shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live, if he trust to his own righteousness and commit iniquity, all his righteousness shall not be remembered. But for his iniquity that he hath committed, he shall die for it. Again, when I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die. If he turn from his sin and do that which is lawful and right, if the wicked restore the pledge, give again that he had robbed, walk in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of his sins that he hath committed shall be mentioned unto him. He hath done that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live. Yet the children of thy people say, The way of the Lord is not equal. But as for them... Their way is not equal. When the righteous turneth from his righteousness and committeth iniquity, he shall even die thereby. But if the wicked turn from his wickedness and do that which is lawful and right, he shall live thereby. Yet ye say, The way of the Lord is not equal. O ye house of Israel, I will judge you every one after his ways. Amen. Ending our reading there at verse 20. Let us seek the Lord and ask for His help now. 
Our Father in heaven, we come one final time as we have come to the preaching of the word of God. Having heard thy word, O Lord, we give thee thanks for it and ask for thy help in understanding it. Ask for thy help in preaching it. And we ask for thy help in hearing it. Lord, please fill me with the Holy Spirit. Lord, I cast myself upon thee. And all of us here, we cast ourselves upon thee. Help us, O God, to rightly hear, to rightly receive, and to rightly do according to what we've heard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I draw your attention to verse 11. And our question uh, for this week, as we are continuing our studies in major questions in the Bible, we have come to a very major question indeed in the Bible. And it is found in Ezekiel 33.11. And the question is, For why will ye die, O house of Israel? Why will ye die, O house of Israel? This is a very significant question. Uh, it's historically significant for the nation of Israel, but it also has a lot of theological significance. And just before we uh, get into the text, just some things by way of introduction, a brief comment on the historical context. Uh, we're not going to be so much looking uh, at the historical setting as much, but it is important to note some things about it. Uh, Ezekiel has been prophesying of coming judgment, uh, the coming judgment of God upon the people for their sin. This was temporal judgment that was going to come on the nation of Israel that he has been prophesying about already in the book, in the prophecy. And the people, it seems, have concluded that it is hopeless and that God's offer of forgiveness if they repent is not sincere. That seems to be what they've concluded from what our Lord says they say. Thus ye speak, saying, If our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them, how should we then live? This chapter is really, a, a, in some ways, a repetition of chapter 18. And so, just some notes about what we're seeing here. It is important to note that the death uh, referred to in its context is referring to physical death. It's physical death in view in light of temporal punishment for sin that God was going to bring. And the righteousness that we've read about in these verses is not imputed righteousness, it is outward righteousness. It's very important to distinguish that because this prophecy, this, this portion of this prophecy is dealing with the people in terms of their outward obedience to God in terms of a nation. That's very important to distinguish that. This is not talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ. We're not going to be really looking at those things, but it's necessary to point them out to you. So that's somewhat of the historical context. But really, where this becomes so significant is the theological reality that comes from this statement in Ezekiel 33.11. And if I may draw a parallel from what we've considered about the historical context, in light of Ezekiel uh, prophesying of coming judgment, uh, you see that still going on today. We as Christians, we, we tell people of the coming judgment of God. It is, a, in one sense, a temporal judgment, but it's a greater eternal judgment that is coming upon all the souls of men. And then people will conclude 
uh, that, that it is hopeless and that for whatever reason, God's not sincerely offering to them forgiveness, not sincerely offering them the gospel. And you may be wondering why we've come to this question in particular. I, I wrestled over what question we would consider this week. I had this one among many others. And in light of what we studied this morning, I felt compelled as a matter of the whole counsel of God to deal with such a question as this. Because the question would arise in light of this morning's message, in light of the doctrine of election. Some people may ask that you preach the gospel to, what if I am not elect? And if there are elect, then God's offer must not be sincere. How can the offer of the gospel be sincere if there are select chosen to be saved? How could it be sincerely offered to all? That's the question that arises. And so, people question the sincerity of the offer. And we're going to look at that tonight from this text. And this is a difficult subject. There, there is no doubt this is a difficult subject. It is one of the most difficult subjects that I can see from a theological perspective. Really, the subject we'll be considering really hones in on divine sovereignty, human responsibility, and the free offer of the gospel. And how those three things relate. And how they are all true and non-contradictory has baffled some of the, some of the greatest minds. And so I'm not going to, when you walk out of here, you're not going to say, oh, we, you know, we figured all of it out. But I trust you will come away understanding the reality of what God has revealed and the truth. Because this text is full of clarity. It greatly clarifies the issue at hand. It brings up the reality of man's choice and his responsibility in his choice. And so I want to speak to you tonight from Ezekiel 33, 11, on choosing death over life. Choosing death over life. For our text says, our question is, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? And really, it's a part of the whole statement that God has given to Ezekiel from, verse, from the beginning of verse, verse 11. But we want to just take the question for our points and hone in, our, our, pin our thoughts in this way. So the first thing I want you to consider from this text is the author of this choice. The author of this choice. Why will ye die? The question is not one of interview. It's not a question as if God doesn't know or a question as if they don't understand. The question is one of, of a willing choice. Why will ye die? Will ye die? That's the point is that this is a willing choice being made by the wicked in view in this text. And so the first thing we want to see here as we think about the author of this choice is that the wicked are responsible for this choice. The wicked are responsible for this choice. Why will ye die? 
The first thing to see in relation to this is that their death is due to sin. Their death is due to sin. In verse 13, When I shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live, if he trusts to his own righteousness and commit iniquity, all his righteousness shall not be remembered. But for his iniquity that he hath committed, he shall die for it. For his iniquity that he hath committed, he shall die for it. It is death due to sin. And as I said, this has in particular view physical death as it relates to the nation of Israel and the judgment that was going to come. But we know, in the greater context of the Scriptures, there are more than one kind of death. There is physical death, there is spiritual death, and there is eternal death. You find all of those in the Bible. Ephesians 2.1, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's spiritual death. In Revelation 20.14, we're told about the lake of fire, in the eternal judgment of God, and it is called the second death. That is eternal death. And there is obviously physical death in the Scriptures, as well as in human experience. And so, it is not merely physical death that is in view for the wicked. We know that from the greater context of the Scriptures. But this death is due to sin, the physical death, as well as the spiritual, the eternal death that would come. And in verse 10, as they say, they know if our transgressions and our sins be upon us and we pine away in them, how should we then live? How should we then live? Their death is due to sin. And they are responsible for their sin. Verse 10 makes this very clear. This is what they have said. God says, thus ye speak, speaking of the nation of Israel. Speaking to the house of Israel, thus ye speak, saying, If our transgressions and our sins be upon us, our, our, and upon, those words help us to understand that this is pers- these are the sins of the people. They are responsible for them. They, that word upon really has the idea of against. They're our transgressions, they're our sins, and they're against us. They're laid to our charge, as it were. Not only are they responsible for their sin, they're responsible for the love, their love of their sin. Verse 10, If our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them. Pine away in them. That that has the idea of consuming away in them. Remaining in them, so that they are going to consume those who are committing them. In other words, they are, they are content to stay there. They are staying in their sin, pining away, consuming away in them. And they are responsible for refusing to part with their sin. They have been commanded to turn. In verse 11, Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. And so God is clear that they are to turn, and yet they are choosing not to part with their sin. So the wicked are responsible for this choice. The next thing I want us to see here as we think about the author of this choice is that God is not responsible for this choice. God is not responsible for this choice. For He says... Not only why will ye die, O house of Israel, 
But just listen to the word of the Lord here. As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. As I live, in other words, as surely as I exist, as surely as I am in being, he swears by himself or he can swear by none greater, saith the Lord God, the divine names there, Lord being referring to his sovereignty, the, the word Adonai, and then God is actually a form of Jehovah, so it's the unchangeable name, that is pointing to the unchangeable character of God. So this is a weighty statement. That the Lord makes. Why do you think he, he makes takes such time to make such a statement? He wants it to be clear. Crystal clear. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And yet, we read things like in Proverbs 16, that the wicked, God hath made all things, even the wicked, for the day of wrath. But this verse is telling us God takes no delight whatsoever in the destruction of the wicked. Now I suggest to you here that what's in view is the fact that they are image bearers of God. That, that God takes no delight in the death of those that bear His image. For all men have been created in the image of God. And if there was any question about what I'm saying here in regards to God not taking delight taking pleasure, that's what the word means, in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 18.23 uses even stronger language. If you'll turn over there in your Bible to Ezekiel 18.23. Listen to the, the translation. is helpful here. It, it communicates the emphasis being laid in the Hebrew concerning the, the repetition to, to draw an emphasis on the certainty of this statement. Ezekiel 18.23 says, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? That's a strong statement. You'll see why I'm drawing your attention to these things in just a moment. But then in verse 32 of chapter 18, he says it again. For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. Now, what are we to conclude from that? Well, our brother, John Calvin, who many take issue with, but this is what he says concerning these verses and it's very helpful. He says, commenting on Ezekiel 18, 23, God desires nothing more earnestly than that those who were perishing and rushing to destruction should return into the way of safety. Now this is important because there are many, especially in a Reformed setting, that would take issue with this kind of language. That, that God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, that, that He desires their repentance. He's, he's willing for them to repent. Because of their views of the sovereignty of God, they would take issue with such language. And yet, this is the language that we find in the Scriptures. And we find it repeated 
in several ways so as to hedge us in to this conclusion. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? And yet, God does take pleasure in the execution of justice. Jeremiah 9.24, if you'll turn over there with me, you'll find this word occurring again, Jeremiah 9.24. And we're taking some time with this because it is such a pivotal part of the text and it is such a huge issue. So Jeremiah 9.24, we'll begin reading from verse 23. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. That's the word. I take pleasure in these things. Loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. In the case of the wicked, that means their death. That is, that is justice. In the day that ye eat thereof, thou shalt die. Further, God so delights in justice that He will give sinners up to the hardness of their own hearts and their pursuit of sin in order that He can execute His justice. I am reading these things because I am trying to be very careful in my language here and I want you to follow me. So with that statement, turn to 1 Samuel 2.25. He so delights in justice that he will give sinners up to the hardness of their own hearts and their pursuit of sin in order that he can execute his justice. 1 Samuel 2.25, we'll read from verse 22. This is referring to Eli and his sons. Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he said unto them, why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. Let me read that again. They hearkened not unto the voice of their father because the Lord would slay them. The word would there in that verse is the same word that occurs in Ezekiel 33.11. It's the word for desire. In other words, when it says would slay, it is desire, desired to or was pleased to slay them. Do you feel the tension between those verses? I'll point out, it's not a contradiction. God never contradicts Himself. But from a human perspective, there is tension here. It's biblical tension. Because in the one text, we are told 
God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In the other text, in 1 Samuel 2.25, we're told that he does take pleasure in the execution of justice, which is the death of the wicked. And that it was for the good of all the other people. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. And so the Lord delighted to execute, execute justice upon them. And the text explicitly says that he would slay them. I'm not going to fully resolve the tension here. Because I can't. I'm simply declaring to you the whole counsel of God. But what I am going to do is state the facts and a key doctrine that is helpful to see at work here, and then I'm going to leave it there. First, the fact. God's revealed attributes and emotions are never in conflict. Never in conflict. But are always harmonious. They are always in harmony. God is not two-faced. He does not say one thing over here and say one thing over here so that we look at him as sort of schizophrenic. Okay? That's the fact. His attributes, his emotions revealed in Scripture are always harmonious. They are this to such a degree that we're told in Romans 3.26 that he's the just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. That's the extent to which God is, is in harmony with himself. That Christ had to go through what he went through in order to save us so that God is still just, though he forgives sin. So just take note of that. That, that he takes that degree of effort, if we can use that language even, to make sure that there is no contradiction of his attributes revealed in Scripture. And the key doctrine, that's a fact. That's a fact. Don't conclude anything other, because anything other is false. Now here's the key doctrine that is helpful to see at work here in Ezekiel 33.11. It is the doctrine of common grace. Common grace. In Psalm 145, verse 8 and 9, we're told, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy, the Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. That is just one text that shows us common grace. God is, is commonly gracious to all of His creation. And so, Ezekiel 33.11 reveals God's common grace to all His creatures in that He does not delight in the death of His creatures made in His image. At the same time, the same goodness of God in His common grace delights in the execution of justice, which includes the just death of the wicked. That's the facts. That's the, the doctrine. And the result is that the responsibility for death is completely the creature's, though God will execute that death in accordance with His perfect justice why do I take the time to, to deal with all of that because it's important brothers and sisters it's not just this kind of why are we taking the time to do this it's the word of God it's how God has revealed himself to us 
And therefore, when we come across things like this, we don't need to shy away from them for fear. We need to embrace them and and, and understand that this is a mark of divine inspiration and the incomprehensible nature of God. The fact that He can't be comprehended. That His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Why do I say it's a mark of divine inspiration? Because, you, you think about this. Think about how men are. And think about what, how men write. Men don't write in such a way uh, that they cannot understand things. That every man, uh, every man wants to understand. He wants to fully comprehend things. And so Ezekiel knew what Samuel had written. And Paul knew what Ezekiel had written. So when Ezekiel uses the same word and said, God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, he knows that Samuel had written, God delighted to slay the sons of Eli. And Paul, when he writes about election, when he writes about us being chosen in him before the foundation of the world, he knows that Ezekiel has said, Why will ye die? I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is is that these things mark out that the fact that God is revealing Himself. It is not... The Bible is an inspired book. And it is marked in this way that the things it reveals are beyond man's comprehension. And so, God is not responsible for this choice. I know that was a long point, but I trust you stayed with me for all of that. Secondly, the alternative to this choice. The alternative to this choice. For when God says, Why will ye die, O house of Israel? The question implies an alternative. Why will ye die when there's this alternative? And what is the alternative? Well, the alternative is for the wicked to repent. That's the alternative. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but, or rather, that the wicked would turn from his way and live. That's what I would have pleasure in. That's what I would have delight in. And so the wicked are responsible to repent. They're responsible for their choice. They're responsible to repent. What is is this repentance? What what does that even look like? It's a 180. It's, It's turning back. It could be translated, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Go the opposite direction. Do a 180 from your evil ways, your sinful ways. And the remarkable thing here, brothers and sisters, the remarkable thing is that this is God pleading with the wicked. Through the prophet, yes. But this is God pleading with them to repent. Why will ye die, O house of Israel? What a revelation of the heart of God for His creatures. Paul says in Romans 2.4, the goodness of God should lead men to repentance. 
His goodness should lead men to repentance. The noted theologian John Murray writes concerning this subject. He says, The full and free offer of the gospel is a grace bestowed upon all. Such grace is necessarily a manifestation of love or loving kindness in the heart of God. And so whatever our our theology, we have to deal with the biblical data. And this text reveals that there is a common grace and, and common grace love to all of God's creatures. In other words, when people will, people will come to such a text and they'll try to explain it away. The same way people will go to a text like where we were this morning and try to explain that away. Both, both camps fall into this. They want to explain away the doctrine of election or others want to explain away the doctrine of common grace and the free offer of the gospel and God's love to all His creation. And yet those things are not in conflict. Those things are to be embraced. And I think it is helpful to think about it this way. To say that God does not desire sinners to repent, which is what some will say, is like saying that He does not desire them to obey His laws. Think about that. People will be uncomfortable with the language to say God desires sinners to repent because they, they so view the desire of God that if God desires something, it, it happens. It must be. And yet, that's not what we're told here. At the same time that God is sovereign, He is sovereign over everything. And, and man's will is not free from the sovereignty of God. That's the reality. But at the same time, God knows that men won't obey His law. But that doesn't mean He doesn't want them to obey His law. And that's common grace. That's, that's what we see at work there in the Ten Commandments. We see that, that there's, there's more to it, that this is God's law for all of mankind. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That is for all of mankind. And so to say that He doesn't desire sinners to repent is like saying He doesn't desire them to not commit murder. And so the alternative is for the wicked to repent. The alternative is for the wicked to live. But that the wicked turn from His way and live. And again, in the context, in the historical context, is referring to physical life. This is a prophecy to the nation of Israel concerning temporal judgment. But, at the same time, that language is used elsewhere in the Bible, and we know that there's more significance to it in the greater context of Scripture. This is God here promising life to truly repentant sinners. God promising it. On what basis? On what basis turn ye and live? On two things. Temporally, God can promise this. Why? Because of common grace. Temporally, He can promise a sinner, if you turn from that sin, then you'll have longer life physically. You see this in the fifth commandment. 
Honor your father and mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. That's a, that's a temporal blessing that comes from obeying God. And yet, it's more than temporal. God can promise this life eternally based on the gospel. When he says, turn and live to sinners, it is a promise based on the gospel. And we know that from the wider biblical context. And so, brothers and sisters, this, this is a sincere offer of the gospel, an example of a sincere offer of the gospel in its broader application. And, and when people take issue with this, it's important to remember Christ did this. It's not as if we just find this in the Old Testament. It's not as if we just find this with the apostles. Christ did this. He did it generally in Mark 1.15. The first words Mark records of our Savior. Repent and believe the gospel. So he did it generally. But he also did it specifically. In John chapter 5. He says. In John 5 speaking to the Pharisees. John 5.40. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. And in verse 39 he had said, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me, and ye will not come to me that ye might have life. And we might say, well, he's, he's not really appealing to them there, he's just stating the fact. Well, back in verse 34 of John chapter 5 he said, But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that ye might be saved. So he is preaching these things in order that they might be saved. He did this regarding Jerusalem and all the people in it. In Matthew's gospel, we read of this. In Matthew 23, our Lord says in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Would I, and ye would not. It speaks of desire. How often would I have desired, how often would I have gathered thee, but ye would not. It's a sincere offer. And you think about this in relation to Judas. Someone our Lord knew was the son of perdition. And yet, he's an apostle and he is present every occasion, at least that we can see. He's present just like all the other disciples, hearing the preaching of Christ. And so Christ preached the gospel to Judas. What a display of divine mercy. Christ did this. He did this as the God-man, pleading with sinners. And the apostles did this. The apostle Paul writes such strong language in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What does he say there in 2 Corinthians 5.20? Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. 
we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. This is the free offer of the gospel. And the reason I take time with this is because this is so misunderstood in these days. And this text brings clarity to this issue. The alternative to this choice. For the wicked to repent and for the wicked to live. And God is pleading with them in His common grace to do so. The final thing, the absurdity of this choice. The absurdity of this choice. The author of this choice, the alternative to this choice, and thirdly, the absurdity of this choice. For our question, we read, Why will ye die, O house of Israel? Why? Absurdity. Why does God ask that question? He asks that question for you to ask yourself. He asks this question to the wicked so that they, that they would ask themselves, Why will I die? He's not asking it for himself like we've noticed with the other questions. He's asking it for the benefit of those reading this, for the benefit of those hearing this. Why will ye die, O house of Israel? The first thing here, it is absurd. It is an absurd choice in light of sin's reward. It is absurd in light of sin's reward. Sin's pleasures are only for a season. That's what we read concerning Moses. When he made the choice by God's grace, but made the choice to forsake Egypt. In Hebrews 11.26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Verse 25, back up. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And so the pleasures of sin are for a season, but they are only for a season. And so the wicked, and, and, and if there is anyone here, there is anyone listening in that does not know the Lord, listen to this. Sin, its pleasures are only for a season. You may enjoy it now, but in the end it will cost you everything. What profit, what, what profiteth a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So sin's pleasures are only for a season. And sin's final end is always death. It's always death. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. So for all that you give up to sin... All that you give to it, everything in your life, all that you suffer and face because of sin and wanting to sin, it will only reward you ultimately with death and eternal separation from the enjoyable, the good, the benevolent presence of God. It is absurd in light of sin's reward. It is absurd in light of God's revelation. God has revealed that if you will come, if you will come, then He will receive you. 
Turn. Live. Repent. Believe. God has revealed that if you do not come, then you are solely responsible. Why will ye die? Why will you choose death? It's an absurd choice, and yet so many make it. And for those here who know the Lord, I quoted the hymn this morning, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. It applies here as well. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room, while thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? If you'll turn with me, I want to finish our thoughts in Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11. Because in Matthew 11, you have the subject displayed all together. Man's responsibility for his sin and the judgment that will come because of it. Divine sovereignty in salvation and the sincere and free offer of the gospel. Matthew 11, 20 through 24. I'm just reading these and highlighting. Matthew 11, verse 20. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. That is human responsibility for sin. And let it be said here, the more truth you know as a wicked person, the more truth a sinner knows, the more accountable they are to God. All sinners are accountable to God. But there's degrees as the knowledge increases. That's what we see here. But human responsibility. Then verse 25. At that time, and just think of the wonder of how Matthew records this. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. That's divine sovereignty in salvation. So you have human responsibility for sin, divine sovereignty and salvation, and then you have the sincere and free offer of the gospel in 28 through 30. Come unto me. This is the, these are the words of our Lord Jesus. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now think about that. 
the three subjects we were looking at in relation to Ezekiel 33.11, and they all are just put right next to each other, right here. The Word of God is clear. Whether we can understand it all is not the point. The point is what is true and what is not true. The point is what is the role of the sinner in all of this. What the sinner's responsibility is not is to question God and to question about election and all of these things. What the sinner's responsibility is is faith and repentance. Come back where we were this morning. Faith and repentance. Just let us, as we close, behold the wonder that is God and embrace the biblical tension that the finite mind cannot resolve or comprehend. This is not confusion, brothers and sisters. There's no confusion here. It is clear exactly what the role of the sinner is, what God's role is, and the free offer of the gospel, the demand of it. How it all works out in the divine mind is not my place. Again, God is not two-faced. Titus 1-2, God that cannot lie. That's what we're told, God that cannot lie. He has one perfect will that is revealed in two ways. It is decretive and it is prescriptive. In other words, God has decreed that some will be saved. And God has prescribed that all should repent and believe the gospel. And you say, well, how does that work? Well, I'll give an illustration, not original with me, but very helpful, and it makes the point well. You think about a train track, and a father and a son, as they look down train tracks that go parallel, and they go off in, in a straight line for a long distance. And the son, the little boy, as he looks down the train tracks, he, he begins to, to call to his father, Dad, Dad, the, the train tracks, they're... They converge. As they go down, they, they converge, they cross. The train's going to derail or, or crash into one another. And the father, in his wisdom, says, No, son. The train tracks run parallel. It just looks as if they converge. But they don't. They run parallel. And that illustrates this truth of divine, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. They never converge. They don't contradict. They never cross over. They run parallel. Even if us, in our limited understanding, look down the ways of the tracks and it looks like they converge, they don't. I close in the words of Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. For how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out.
Let us remember that. And let us preach the gospel sincerely, calling people to repent and believe, knowing that God delights not, has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And I implore anyone here tonight, anyone listening, to take heed to this message. If you do not know Christ, come to Him. Call upon Him. Believe on Him. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful to Thee for Your goodness and for Your mercy. Lord, we thank Thee for the Word of God. Lord, how it stretches our mind, how it puts us in the dust. And we must cry out, Oh, the depth of the riches. Lord, we confess Thou art great and greatly to be praised. We thank Thee that Thou art perfect in all Thy ways. We are thankful that You have given us the inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word of God. And Lord, we pray now that as Thy Word has gone forth, that even through a message like this, that some, that someone, Lord, who doesn't know Thee would see the sincere offer of Christ. That they would see Him having come and obeyed the law of God and earned their righteousness. Seeing Him on the cross satisfying the wrath of God upon sin. Lord, that they would see that and they would simply believe on Christ. They would simply come to Him and embrace Thy message of salvation in Him. Please hear our prayers, Lord. Move upon people. Be pleased to save souls. Bless us all, Lord, as we depart into this week. Lord, sustain us and give us help to preach Thy Word, to be faithful, to share the Gospel. Please receive our thanks. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.